The term good. How would you define it? If we were to take this term good and we were kind of trying to unpack it, what does it mean? And the reality is it's an adjective that describes something else and it almost needs something else to begin to give us those boundaries. But even that, is, is good better than average? Is it less than excellent? Because whenever I fill out a, a summary of something, they'll have over here, you know, don't like, didn't like, didn't fulfill. And over here is excellent. And actually good is always like right here. It's almost kind of like it's average. Uh, until you begin to unpack it. So for example, if we were to say, um, a lot of you are on athletic teams. And if you were to ask the question, are you a good teammate? Nobody would say, well, I think I'm average. No, you, you would define good in that sense as way better than average. What is a good teammate? Uh, you might come with things like unselfish. If you have a teammate, you've ever played with one who's just incredibly selfish or worked on a staff where somebody has to be the hero, it's just not fun. A hard worker, absolutely. Cheers for everyone, I love that. This is a high value with my first comment is I, I like people who don't bring drama to the team. Uh, it's the individual who shows up, works, doesn't have to make it about themselves. Drama is way overrated to me. I, I like a person who understands their role. Man, it, it, one of my favorite phrases that a former staff member said, he goes, Mark, that person is comfortable in their own skin. I'll never forget that phrase. I love that. It's a person who knows their role and they, 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 they know they're critical, but they don't try and play outside of their boundaries. That makes for a good teammate. Nobody, I would say, is, wow, you're average. No, you're good. And in that sense, you're the kind of person that I would want to play with or work with. Maybe another one would be is, what does it mean to be a good teacher? We would never think of good in that sense as, well, just you're just barely making it. You're average. You're kind of sufficient. Uh, the good communicators or good teachers that I've known are all good communicators. Every teacher that I've ever had that I say, wow, that was a great teacher. I, I had a teacher uh, early on in my career or as a edu you know, in education, and this teacher was outstanding. He made me want to come to school. He inspired us. And at second grade, that's pretty significant. <laughs> I had him at second grade. I had him at fourth grade, and I student taught under him. Mr. Nordyke was a hero to me. I, if, if he could have mentored every teacher, I would have said, man, this world's going to be a better place. When I went to seminary, I had a teacher who was an incredible good communicator. He was patient, yes. He was engaging. He was unbelievably prepared. But even beyond that, I'll never forget one time when Dr. Blomberg was lecturing and somebody asked him a question and he said, well, if you look in 1968, Bibliotheca, it's a publication of Dallas Theological Seminary, page 7374, and he kind of wrote the entire bibliography up on the blackboard, kind of backwards, you know, he wasn't even looking at the blackboard. And I was like, how'd you do that? And I, when I went and talked with him afterwards, I found out that he had this incredible gift, you know, of, of kind of a photographic memory. I thought to myself, that is unfair. 
It, it is. I mean, it's like, number one, his wife will never win an argument. She tries to pull something. He goes, nope, that's not the way it was. I know. 75 years ago, I know what happened. But it's like, imagine, can you imagine how cool school would be for you if you had a photographic memory? And everything you read, it was there. It's just like, he was brilliant. Prepared, creative, respectful. All of those things would be a good teacher. But if we move to another field... The list is very different. It is still, you would use the term, he's a good teammate, he's a good teacher, or he's a good surgeon. I knew when I was a kid, I'm not going to be a surgeon. It was in junior high. We had a class where we took apart a toaster and put it back together again. And when we did, I had a number of parts left over. <laughs> I knew then, don't be a surgeon. I'd finish it up and my assistant would be just like, hey, uh, Dr. Hankey, what are you going to do with these parts? I don't know. <laughs> if, if a person's a good surgeon, they probably are certainly educated, very well trained, technical proficiency, yes, very good at decision making. Not all of life kind of plays out the way you think. Attention to detail, that's big. Adaptability, yes. Hand-eye coordination, sure. Even if you're using robotic surgery. Integrity, I hope so. You see, it, it really depends on whatever you describe as to what good means. It means different things. It's not that it has no substance, but it's a descriptor of something else. It's an adjective that qualifies or characterizes or influence this noun. And so when we look at it and Jesus comes and he goes, I am a good shepherd. The question I think we ought to raise in this text is what makes him good? And by the way, if he is good, what response does he want from me? Because if you're a good teammate, I want to play with you. If you're a good staff member, I want to be on your team. If you're a good teacher, I want my child to have you. And if you're a good surgeon, I trust you and I want you to do my surgery. See, good in every one of these situations solicits a response. It does in this text. And when Jesus describes, and he starts off in verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. Later, he says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. And in each case, he begins to unpack what does that mean? The very beginning, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What makes Jesus good? Is his willingness to sacrifice. It's the sacrificial love of the shepherd. It's his willingness to not just sacrifice time, but actually he goes to a whole different level and he says that the good shepherd is willing to lay down his life. 
If you sacrifice your time, that's huge. If you give a person an entire day of your time to help them do something, that's marvelous. If you're good at mechanics and you come along and say, hey, you know what? It's going to cost you more than you can afford to rebuild your engine and I, I can do that for you. And that person comes along and they, they do it and they, they save you all kinds of money and you're like, wow, I would have been walking the streets had it not been for you. That sacrifice means a lot. But Jesus' sacrifice is different. It's a love that goes beyond our understanding. A love that is willing to give up everything. Even life itself. There was a meeting that occurred in heaven. It's not really noted in scripture. The implication of it is. The scripture says before the foundation of the world, God determined that he would send Jesus to die. Sometime up in heaven, they had a meeting. They had made the decision to create. They decided we want to create people and we want people to be in fellowship with us. We want people to enjoy us and we want people to enjoy what we have in our relationship. But they knew, because God knows all things, that humans weren't going to be able to resist temptation. And they were going to buy into the lie, John 10.10 says, and they were going to buy into the deception that they can do life better than if they trust God. And as they were imagining this creation and making these people, the reality came to them that we're going to create people for fellowship with us and sin is going to enter into that and destroy that. And the very people we created to spend eternity with us are going to spend an eternity in hell. The chasm between holiness and unholiness was bigger than the Grand Canyon and they knew it. And so the Trinity sat around, and I don't know where the initial design or thought came. My guess is it was from the Father. And the Father said, the only way we can ever redeem them is to die for them. The very people we made is to die so that we can forgive them. I don't think it was a vote. I think they unanimously came to the place where they sat. Jesus, would you go? And maybe the passage that unpacks this and kind of clarifies this in the most beautiful way is Philippians 2. Where the text says that even though he considered equality with God something that, that was a reality, he did not grasp and take hold of it. He didn't say, I'm not leaving this beautiful place. But he emptied himself and he took on the form of a man and became a servant, a servant even unto death. When Jesus says, I want you to know I'm a good shepherd. He was willing to die for you. He was willing to go to the extent, not out of obligation, but out of choice. I will rescue you. Christ didn't lay down his life out of obligation. It wasn't a two-to-one vote. He did it because he loved you. 
He did it not only in heaven, but he did it on earth. When he was in the garden and he was having that conversation with the father and he says, father, I don't want to go. And the father began to show him certain things. And, and the son in that moment said, I will go. I, I, and he makes that commitment again. It's, you're not forcing me. You're not throwing my arm up against my back and saying, I, I have to go do this. No, 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 I want to. And when Peter tried to step in and take the soldier's ear off, Jesus reattached it and said, Peter, uh-uh, don't get in the way of what we're about to do. And he willingly chose, willingly chose to go and to die. It's an act of love. It's a sacrificial love. And that's what Jesus means when he says, I'm a good shepherd. But it's not just that. He says not only that, but he says, I'm a good shepherd who personally knows my sheep and my sheep know me. Verse 14 says it this way. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Amazingly, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ knows you the way he knows the father. But the power of this text is also, it's reciprocal. You know him. And the word he uses is not some word that describes certain facts that you know, people know about you. Google knows all kinds of things about you. Probably enough to scare you. That doesn't mean Google has an intimate relationship with you. That would be weird. But the fact is, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, I know facts about God. He's not talking about, I know I can give you a list of things about the Father. He's saying, I know him in the sense that I have experienced him. I have a relationship with him. And it speaks of an experiential knowledge, a knowledge that comes from a personal experience and an intimate relationship. And I know sometimes that kind of weirds us out because we don't want anything based upon experience. But that's exactly what Jesus says here. I know you like I know the Father. I've worked with him. I've been influenced by him. I've loved him. I'm intimate with him, not in the sense of sexually, but in the sense of we're on the same page. We're of the same spirit and we share each other and we created together and we went to the cross together. And the Lord said, that's the kind of relationship that I want with you. And my friends, when he knows that, it changes things because Jesus knows your needs and he knows your fears and he knows your strengths, but he also knows your weaknesses. And when he prays for those, he prays with you in mind and he prays with certain knowledge about you. He doesn't pray bland prayers. Oh, Father, please bless my sheep today. But he prays knowing the thing right now today that you're facing. The challenge that you're not sure how you're going to get through. The financial situation you're not sure how you're going to solve. The relational tension in your family that feels like it's creating a fragility that you wonder if you're going to survive. He knows all about that. And when the son who's at the right hand of the father prays, he prays with that in mind. 
It's the kind of difference that it happens in, in, for you. Um, if you pray for the missionaries and you have no idea who they are, then you say, well, God bless the missionaries. Just be with them. And you know some general things. Lord, they're going to have to travel, so be with them. But if you know a situation and you know that they have a son who's on the spectrum and that son is having fits of rage. And so they have to bar their door at night because periodically he's come in and he's brought certain knives and he's beginning to be a threat to them and, and, and they can't leave him alone. And all of a sudden, what they went there for to serve is really having, they're having a hard time trying to fulfill those. And as I pray for them, I pray, God, would you give them wisdom to know how to bring healing to their son, how to manage their son, where does their son need to be? God, all of those decisions, they, they don't know, they don't give them the mind of Christ. Some other friends I have, they live in a country, they've been there for 25 years, and all of a sudden the country has changed. It's very much, I'm quite certain, affected by what's happening in the Middle East between Israel and, and, and Hamas and all of those neighboring communities. And, and this country that they have been living in quite freely for years, all of a sudden, just last week, shipped somebody out that had been there for 10 years and they gave them 24 hours to get out of the country. What would it be like for you, for me? If I have to keep a, a bag packed and that bag is the only thing going with me and everything else left in this apartment is going to go to somebody else. And I have to make that decision in less than 24 hours. I planted some daffodils last fall, about 300 of them. Why? Because I believed, apart from a really bad heart attack, that I was going to be there this spring. So I planted them with what? The thought, I'm going to be here. What's it like to live in a place, develop relationships, invest, knowing that at any moment within 24 hours, you're on a plane and you're shipped out and everything you leave behind is lost. See, I pray for them differently because I'm praying now, God, help them to build long-term relationships even if they're only going to be for 20 more hours. Help them to live God, not with a temporary mindset. Why do I pray that way? Because I know them. And I know what they face. See, that's the difference. When Jesus says, I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. It means that he's leading you with an insight into your life far deeper than anyone else. It means that he is protecting you in ways to your weakness, but also to the enemy's plan. It speaks of an experiential knowledge, a knowledge that comes from personal experience. A caution, I believe that we have to learn to make the distinction between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. One of my fears, I'm not the judge, God is, but one of my fears at times for people who've been around the church for a long time is that they know a lot of facts about God, 
They know tons of facts and they can tell me that Jesus is God, came in the flesh, died on the cross, lived a sinless life. They can tell me all those things. But their rageaholism is the same today as it was 20 years ago. They tell me that they know facts about God. But their struggle with money is the same today as it was 15 years ago. Their pride is the same. Their jealousy is the same. Their willingness to leak prayers and turn it into gossip is kind of the same as it was 10 years ago. And I wonder sometimes if maybe we settle for facts about Jesus versus what the shepherd invites you to. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. I don't know what started it, but a number of years ago, I started keeping track of just peculiar and interesting and lovely facts about my wife. I decided to have one for every year of her life, so I have 64 things that intrigue me, that fascinate me about her. Some of them are, you would say, is fairly mundane. I know her shoe size. I know her inseam size. When I go and shop for clothes, I'm not sure why, but the ladies at the clothing store are always utterly fascinated that I know my wife's inseam size. <laughs> They're like, wow. It's like, well, you know, it's lived with her for 40 years, should know that stuff. But my friends, there's a huge difference between facts that I know about her and the fact that I can see across the room the disposition of her heart. I can look in her eyes and see worry and she me. That's the invitation of the father. That's the invitation of the shepherd. I want a personal knowledge and an, and an interest in your life. And I want an experiential knowledge like he describes there that describe a husband and wife, that describe the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, that's what I want from you. And he says, well, how do you do that? Don't make it rocket science. It's not. It's really the same way as your human relationships. If you don't spend time with each other, then you don't get to know each other. And when you're together, if you're both on your phone, you're not going to develop a really good relationship. I was watching two people just yesterday, and I, and I, I, I said jokingly, uh, they probably thought I was being a smart mouth, which I think I was. Um, I said, you know, that relationship does a whole lot better if you put those phones away and talk to each other. <laughs> he just some old geezer. Yes, I am. Proud of it. <laughs> Hallelujah to the 60s, right? Spend time. Listen. Share life together. Talk. Open the scriptures. 
I'm not against reading through the Bible in a year. I think it's a marvelous discipline. But do you slow down enough to let the Bible read through you? Or is it just sufficient enough for you to check? I've done it. Do you ever pause and reflect and meditate and, and ask the question, God, what does this look like in my life? And what, what does it mean that you're good? And what are the implications to my life if you're good? And then we will begin to discover and wrestle with the question, what is the real priority of the Christian life? Is it that I behave well? What is the real priority of your kids? What's your highest priority for your children in relationship to their Christian life? What's the one thing that you say, above all things, this is it? Is it that they have the right doctrine? Is it that they behave well? Paul makes this beautiful but actually kind of shattering statement when he says in Philippians chapter 3, everything else is worthless when compared to the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is worthless. And look what he says is worthless. I no longer count on my own goodness, my own behavior, second I don't count on my ability to obey God's law. That's not the most important thing. That they know the law, that they have correct doctrine. I'm not trying to put doctrine aside, but, but it's not the highest priority. He says everything else is worthless compared to what? Having an intimate relationship with the Father. It'll cause you to ask different questions. What has God been saying to you recently? And for some of us, that question is like, yeah, I don't have a clue. How is God leading you? Where is God working right now in your life? As he chisels away and he shapes you, where is he using the sandpaper and what is he trying to create? How is God alleviating your anxiety and giving you a greater joy and trust every day? If what Paul says is true, everything else is worthless compared to me knowing Christ and him knowing me. My own goodness, rubbish. My ability to obey the law, rubbish. But I trust Christ to save me. And as a result, I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Why is that important? Because the shepherd has a passion to fiercely protect you. Not just love you and love you deeply through sacrifice. And not just to know you, but he knows that you're in an all-out gunfight out there. How do we know? Look at 1010. John 10.10 10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I think it needs to be a reminder to you today that when you got up, Satan had one agenda for you. And he had, doesn't sleep and he doesn't take time off. And he has enough demons in heaven to give you some attention or in hell to give you some attention. And he wants to kill you. 
And he wants to steal from you and he wants to destroy you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your confidence. He wants to kill you physically. He would delight in your death. He would love to destroy your hope. He would absolutely love to destroy your optimism. He would love to have you wake up every morning just absolutely in a cloud of depression. He would love that. And by the way, that's what he does every day for you. When Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd, what's his vision for you? It's given in the next words. Satan has come to kill, to steal and destroy, and I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I've come that they have life. I think when you and I get to heaven, one of the things we're going to see is all the times that God intervened on your behalf, times that he said, your marriage is sacred, I'm going to fight for you. The enemy wants to create a jealousy. He's going to send a temptress along to kind of seduce you. And I know your marriage is flat right now and it's struggling. It's not horrible. You're not fighting. You just are kind of roommates. And all of a sudden, Satan looks at that and says, ha, now I got you right where I want you. You're kind of just sedate. You're flat. You're not having a fight. And so you're not alert. And the enemy sends a temptress. It's a person who reconnects with you through Facebook. You knew her 20 years ago. And all of a sudden you begin this dialogue. It's innocent. I mean, after all, it's just Facebook, right? I'm not meeting her. I didn't have lunch with her. And all of a sudden you can't figure out why your Facebook crashes for two weeks. And you're going to get to heaven and God's going to say, he wanted to destroy your marriage. I had to send a virus into your computer to take it out just to spare you. Have you ever thanked God for viruses? (laughs) Have you ever thanked God for missed plane flights? Because there was going to be somebody sitting next to you who just got told from her husband that he's having an affair and she wants to get back at him and she's furious and she's looking for anyone, it doesn't matter. Just has to be a man that she can have a one night stand with. She doesn't want to get entangled. She just wants to hurt her husband. And you miss the flight And you're mad because you're not going to get home. And you're going to get to heaven. And God's going to say, I know. I stranded you in Atlanta. And I know you're ticked. And you told me you were ticked. And if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be ticked. You would say, oh God, thank you for the pathetic United Airlines. (laughs) Thank you for their incompetence. (laughs) Thank you for the mechanic that didn't show up. Praise God. I guarantee you, come find me in heaven 
and you get your monies back on this one. If when we get there, God's not going to tell you all the times that he sought to bring you life. How? The shepherd's protective provision can be likened to a fortress. Just do a Bible search of the word shield and how many times it's used that God is our shield and strength. He's a sun and a shield. He's provision and protection. And he's a safe haven that shields us from the storms of life. When Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd, it means the 24-7. Either he, the Holy Spirit, the Father, or angels are attending to you to bring you life, to protect you from the strategies of the enemy, to speak life into you when you're just utterly overwhelmed and you think, I can't keep going. And he gives a provision. It's like a compass. Guides us through the wilderness of life. Now, if you're like me, sometimes when you're in the midst of these things, you're kind of like, God feels like, Lord, I'd like a little more audible. I'd like you to turn up the volume. Please speak to me. And maybe the best thing I can give you, other than the scriptures, is to look around our church and find somebody in their senior years who have walked with God and just ask him, can we go out for lunch and can you tell me how God has faithfully led you? Can you tell me how God has helped you make decisions? And what they're going to give to you is one of the sweetest gifts in the world. Is they're going to tell you all the ways that God was their compass. And as they look back over their life when they were 20 and they didn't have a clue and they're trying to figure out their career and who could they ever find to marry that would put up with them for the next 40 years. And now... We had a couple this morning celebrating 69 years of marriage. That's all right. You don't have to clap. They're not here. They were in the first service. <laughs> if you know the Federics, find them and send them a congratulations. But what they will tell you is, oh, God has led us every step of the way. You may not see it in the moment. And you may have some really, really squirrely things that you have to take care of today, this week. But God's promise is, I'm your shepherd. You're my sheep. And I will tend to you. What's the net result? Trust him. Trust him. Trust that God is willing to sacrifice for you, not just at the cross, but every day. Trust that God's greatest passion is to know you and for you to know him. And he will fiercely defend you. I got a note a couple of weeks ago of a missionary couple in Israel. And they were describing an encounter that they had recently. It's in the last month. Um, all of the fighting's going on. They're well within gun range. Not sure why they're hanging out there. But they were driving along and they pulled over and when they saw this shepherd, they rolled their window down and they could hear the gunfire. And whenever the gunfire came and, and just lit the place up, the sheep would just scatter all over the place. And they would run for cover. And the shepherd would take his staff and he would go out and he would just kind of, every one of them, he would just tap them on the shoulder. It's all it took. Just tapped them. And they would start to huddle back around the shepherd. 
And those sheep that were like a scattered beehive, just after he would touch them, they would all come back and hunker around him and kind of get close. They'd start to eat. The gunfire would fire up again. And they would scatter. And again, this couple sat and watched. And he would go and tap each of the sheep. They would start to come back to him. They would relax. When Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd, it means this. You're going to hear gunfire. You're going to get news that's going to just absolutely unwind your head and your heart. And the Father's going to touch you and he's going to say, I've got you. I do. Trust me. I know how to get through this. You're going to have news that comes home or you're going to look at your future and your future is going to like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to make a decision. And the panic is going to rise. And you're going to want to go out there and do something. I got to move somewhere. I got to change this. I got to do something. I got to make something happen. And it's in that moment, the father will just touch you on the shoulder and say, it's okay. Cast all of your anxiety upon me because I care for you. And I want you to know that the peace of Christ is going to guard your hearts and your minds. You're going to be okay. And then you go along in life. It's something else. And the panic sets in. And the angst sets in. And the father touches you. And he said, how about you and me? Let's think about whatever is true and right and lovely today. Let's think about whatever is pure praiseworthy how about if we take our mind off of all the ways that the enemy is trying to unsettle you and every time the father touches you your heart begins to quiet you begin to see the context of your life very differently why because if he's a good shepherd wise sheep trust him They settle. They come back. Because it's in that relationship. They feel the fierce protection of a God who died for them.